All right, guys, good evening. Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John 2? 1 John 2, where John has been really encouraging the sheep, us, with just words of encouragement and also some words of warning. We'll look at those tonight. But uh, in chapter 2, verse 18, just to recap, just briefly, John says, little children, it is the last hour. John's way of saying we are in the last days. Christ is coming. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, well, he precedes the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even as you've heard the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. If you do a little study uh, on the history of cults, like, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, other groups like Armstrong's Worldwide Church of God, Christian Science, Seven-Day Adventists, you will discover that their founders started in a local church in a local church. They were with us, as John says, but they were not really of us. And so they went out from us and started their own groups. Well, that should be no surprise because Paul the Apostle talked about this way back in his day in Acts 20, verses 29 to 31, talking to the Ephesian elders, warning them about some things that were coming. He said, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. But here's the one that really takes us back. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. Why are so many churches infested with false teachers they're not watching they were not watching they were not being vigilant they were not heeding closely what the lord jesus said and all the apostles who warned us that wolves would come in among us they would look like sheep they would act like sheep they would talk about jesus they would have a bible they would quote verses but their mission was to draw people away after themselves with their false doctrine. And John has these people on his mind because these people destroy sheep. And so in verse 20, he said, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. That's interesting. Now listen, in saying this, John isn't saying that Christians have some, you know, mystical esoteric anointing from the holy spirit which allows us to kind of look into the spirit realm and know all things you know that are hidden from the unanointed you know like we have some kind of a magic crystal ball there are some groups christian groups that act like they have a magic crystal ball i know when joseph smith jr uh you know when he was approached by the angel moroni who gave him all this baloney about how all the churches down through the history of the church were all corrupt 
And God wanted to raise him up to start the first pure church since the beginning and led him to some golden plates, the plates of Nephi, that had this kind of Egyptian hieroglyphics written on it, which would become the Book of Mormon if they could be deciphered and translated. And to do that, uh, the angel gave to Joseph Smith a pair of special magic glasses. They wouldn't call them magic. I'm just saying that, you know. The Urim and Thummim. And once Joseph put them on, he could understand what he was reading. And that became the Book of Mormon. But that's not what John's talking about. He's not talking about magic glasses or anything like that. John is actually picking up on the language of the Gnostics who believed and taught that they possessed special knowledge. This would be deep, mystical, hidden knowledge of spiritual things. In fact, the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is the Greek word for knowledge. And that's because this group of people, and you know what? <laughs> I googled Gnosticism uh, not long ago, and they're around still. They've got websites, and they'll tell you what they believe. Don't bother, okay? Just the lies of the devil. But uh, they, these folks think they have, they are very deep and spiritual. They have techniques through which they can unlock these hidden mysteries, and they have all knowledge and all wisdom. And in fact, in John's day, they even went around saying that claiming that they possessed deeper spiritual knowledge than even the apostles had. As we have already said, to open our study in 1 John, Gnosticism was one of the main cults the early church had to fight against. In fact, all of the New Testament writers pretty much uh, in one form or another came against it, not the least of which was Paul, who said in Colossians 2, verses 3 to 4, in him, speaking of Jesus, see, they, they, they said, oh, in our group, we have all the treasures of hidden wisdom and knowledge. Paul said, eh, no. In Jesus lies all the hidden uh, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I'm telling you this so that no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. When John says in verse 20, speaking to Christians in general, that you have an anointing from the Holy One, he is talking to Christians about the Holy Spirit who lives inside of them, us, sent from the Holy One, Jesus Christ. You remember the night before the cross, and we just celebrated communion, which the Lord Jesus did that night in the upper room before he went uh, into the, to the Garden of Gethsemane and then spent the rest of the night in prayer before he was arrested early in the morning and taken before uh, Annas, uh, and then Pilate, and uh, of course then the events of the crucifixion unfolded. But Jesus laid a bombshell on his disciples. He said in the upper room, I'm going away soon. And where I'm going, you cannot follow me. You can't go with me. Now that was devastating because for the last three and a half years, everywhere Jesus went, his disciples went. Okay? In fact, they had gotten so used to having him, he was a comforter to them. He was a source of great comfort and help being right there. He said, but I'm going away. You can't follow. I'll come back for you someday to take you where I am. But right now, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. I'm leaving you, but I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send to you another helper, 
another comforter, the spirit of truth, who will abide with you forever. And that's where we kind of pick it up in John 14, verse 16. And I will pray the Father. When I go back to the Father, I will pray the Father. He will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Verse 17, the spirit of truth. Later on in chapter 16, verse 13, he said, When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Jesus told them that the Spirit of God would uh, unlock to them spiritual truth that they weren't ready to receive at that moment. He said, I got a lot more I want to say to you, but you're not ready to receive it, not yet. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will lead you into all truth, and so on. All right? and, and this is what I believe John is alluding to. When John says to Christians, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things, well, he doesn't mean that we know everything there is to know in the world. That's absolute knowledge. That's not what he's saying. He is saying we know all things necessary to be saved, salvation, the gospel, and to walk with God. That's all that matters, by the way. We have everything we need for life and godliness, as Peter would say. In fact, I'm going to quote Peter, 2 Peter 1, verses 2 and 3. He said, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And Peter goes on to tell us that we will know spiritual truth because the Spirit of God is in us. We have been partakers of the divine nature, the Spirit of God inside of us, uh, communing with our spirit, unlocking to our understanding the truth Jesus wanted to tell his closest men that night, but they weren't ready to receive that truth. But now since Pentecost, the church has been receiving the deeper things of God. And uh, it's all due to the Spirit of God. So guys, the anointing John is speaking of here is, of course, the Holy Spirit whom Jesus gives to each believer at conversion. Check out Romans 8, verse 9. And this anointing, again, the Holy Spirit, allows us to know truth from error. Very important, because John has been talking about those that come promoting false doctrine, come promoting error. And how are you going to know uh, what is of God, what is not of God? Well, the Spirit of God inside of you if you will look to the Spirit and stay in the Word, you will know the truth. It will set you free from error is the idea. One author said, and I quote, The presence of the Holy Spirit in every believer enables him or her to perceive the truth of the gospel and to distinguish it from error. Of course, some Christians have more perception than others due to God-given ability, satanic blindness, the influence of human teachers, sin in their life, etc. Another author put it this way, he said, and I quote, When a person is saved, he or she receives the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he enables, the Spirit enables the believer to discern between truth and error. When John tells his young readers, you know all things, he does not mean this in an absolute sense. It is not that they have perfect knowledge, but rather that they have the capacity to recognize what is true 
and what is not. Thus, the youngest, simplest believer has the capacity of discernment in divine things that an unsaved philosopher would not have, end quote. So again, chapter 2, verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. That anointing is from Jesus. He's the Holy One who went back to the Father, prayed the Father that the Spirit would be poured out, Pentecost. The Spirit was poured out. The church was born. So you have an anointing, the Spirit, from the Holy One, Jesus, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. By saying this, John wants them to know he isn't writing to tell them anything new in the way of spiritual truth. I mean, they have God's word for themselves. They can read it. And in that regard, they know all things. Or in other words, they know everything they need to know for salvation and to live their Christian life. I mean, God knew we couldn't understand everything uh, with regard to you know, the universe and all this. Uh, he has all knowledge, okay? He's all-knowing. And there are a lot of things that even today uh, God said, Look, my ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts, and my ways than your ways. In other words, I'm going to tell you as much as you can handle. I, somebody likened it years ago to the knowledge of God being like all the oceans on the face of the earth, and our brains like a little thimble. And if you try to pour all the water of all the oceans of the world into a thimble, there's going to be a lot of leakage. So God... you know. He pours into us, and a lot of it we get. A lot of it is still a mystery. We know it's the truth of God and His Word. I don't quite understand. Nothing of basics. We know the gospel. And on that point, we all agree. But there are things that Christians will disagree on, and timing of the rapture, gifts of the Spirit. These are non-essential things. Uh, Peter did say, I think we're going to quote it tonight. He said, you know, our brother Paul said a lot of great things. Some of them were really hard to understand. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Thank you for being honest. Because that's how I feel, okay, when I read Paul. He's just a real intellect, okay? But I just want, John is saying, look, everything you need, because the Gnostics were always saying, oh, no, 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 you know, the Bible's great, but, you know, you really need our insights, you really need the, the hidden wisdom and knowledge that only we can share with you. And that's what John's coming against in the other New Testament writers. And John wants them to know, look, you know, um, I'm, I'm not writing to you uh, things you don't know. I don't have anything new to teach you. I'm writing to admonish you to, uh, to hang on to the truth I've already given to you and to keep walking in that truth. Don't don't be swayed by these persuasive arguments that others have knowledge that you need to live your Christian life. Years ago, I was uh, taking some Bible courses uh, at a Bible college in the area, and I decided to take a course on uh, biblical counseling. Because, you know, I counsel people, and I wanted to, to be better at it And as a young pastor. And uh, the teacher was a um, pastor from the area, Assemblies of God Church. He was a good guy. Uh, but he made a statement one time that uh, took me back so much that I actually asked if I could talk to him after class. And he said, as he was teaching, he said, if you only give people the Bible, you will miss it. 
I have discovered that you need the secular and the sacred combined because they together produce a superior counseling methodology. Now, I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box. That took me back, and I asked him to stay after, and I challenged him uh, with it. And uh, he gave me his reasons for saying that and how that there have been times, because he did like 30 or 40 hours of counseling a week. Uh, that was the problem, I think. If you teach the people the word of God, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Maybe if you taught your people the word of God more, instead of counseling the, all the problems, they wouldn't have so many problems. Even today you have pastors that I think would die defending the inerrancy of the Bible. But where they stumble is on the sufficiency of the Bible. They believe it's God's word, it's just not enough. It has to be supplemented with the wisdom of the world, which J James said is earthly, sensual, and demonic. You know, the psalmist said in Psalm 19, the, the, word, the law of the Lord is what? Perfect, converting the soul. I'm going to take what is perfect. God's word is perfect, pure word, and mix it with the pollution of man's wisdom, and I'm going to come up with a superior counseling methodology. Are you kidding me? I'm only going to pollute the pure. But Christians today fall into this. As I said before, there used to be a time when churches, when they had the money, would hire on staff godly pastors to exegete and teach the scriptures. Today that money is allocated to professional counselors and psychologists who give people, again, man's wisdom. Because today, even today, Christians don't think the Bible is adequate. It's not sufficient. This was nothing new in John's day. These Gnostics were trying to tell, and they weren't the only ones, by the way. There were other cults. They were trying to tell God's people that you don't have all you need to be vibrant and fruitful. I actually heard a guy on the radio one time say, if you really want to be fruitful in your Christian life, you must, you must pursue Christian psychology, which is a misnomer because there's no such thing as Christian psychology. Psychology is the wisdom of man. Christian speaks of following Christ. They're mutually exclusive, although people would argue vehemently with me on that. I stand by what I just said. So there's nothing new John wants to share with them, only to remind them of what he has already taught them and to encourage them to keep walking in that truth. I love what he said in 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Well, you know what? I totally echo that uh you know i think every godly teacher who loves god's sheep that is the passion of their heart all i care about is to know that people are listening to the truth embracing the truth and walking in the truth that's it if i if i know that i am a happy pastor happy teacher okay now look the statement no lie is of the truth seems so obvious we wonder why John felt the need to say something, you know, so axiomatic, you know, self-evident. Until we remember, he was coming against the heresies of several first-century cults. They presented doctrines that contradicted the teaching of God's word, but told their followers that these teachings came from God. So John is stating the obvious, but he feels the need to do so. 
he still feels the need to tell them, look, no lie, in other words, no false doctrine from the devil can also at the same time be truth from God. Lies and truth are mutually exclusive. One plus one cannot be two and three at the same time. Neither can Jesus be the creator of all things, John 1 verse 3, Colossians 1 16. Neither can Jesus be the creator of all things and at the same time be the created being of Jehovah God, which is what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. I think author and commentator J.B. Phillips put it well. He said, and I quote, Truth is confined to what the Bible says. No lie is of the truth. There are many subtle, attractive, and persuasive lies in the world. The devil is very clever in inventing them, and men are very zealous in propagating them. Still, when all is said and done, a lie is a lie and not the truth. The theory of evolution is a lie, albeit a very popular one, and it is promoted by a vast number of very clever people, very intelligent people. It contradicts the Bible, however. As to the creation and fall of man, therefore, it is a lie. All the cults teach lies. All the world's religions, religions deny Christ and propagate lies, even though those who proclaim them are passionately convinced that they have embraced the truth, end quote. And that's where we come in. As Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, don't argue with people that have been taken captive by the devil. Be humble, patient, uh, in humility, correcting them uh, who are in opposition lest God would grant them repentance, their eyes be opened, and they escape the snare of the devil who's taken them captive to do as well. You're never going to argue somebody in the kingdom. You start arguing some, with somebody about spiritual truth, you know that fallen part of us? It becomes a contest to see who's going to win. The flesh rises up, the walls go up, and the conversation goes out the window. Because when you're standing eye-to-eye -eye with somebody in confrontation, the door to their heart is closed. What we need to do is come around side of them, put our arms around them in a spiritualist, so to speak, and now we're just two people trying to find truth. Ask questions. Well, what do you believe? Well, I believe this and that. Well, it's interesting. Why, why do you believe that? Because you know, when you ask questions, you make them the teacher, and that puts them in the superior position, and that tends to open their heart because you're humbling yourself saying, look, I need to learn from you. And that's when the door to their heart comes open, and maybe they'll ask you. If not then, in time, well, what do you believe? And why do you believe that? And then you can share the truth, the gospel. Back in 1 John 2, verse 22, John said, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Uh, John's statement in verse 23, guys, is very definitive, isn't it? Anyone, he says, who denies the person and work of Jesus Christ, he said, the way he puts it, denies the Son, well, he says, does not know God, is not a true Christian, period, end of story. All the cults deny either the person or work of Jesus Christ or both. And yet they all believe that their group 
are the only true people of God. Isn't that interesting? Uh, you talk to somebody in a cult, and uh, they believe that their group alone is the pure ones, uh, are saved, uh, the only true people of God, that kind of thing. All the cults deny that Jesus is Almighty God. They might believe Him to be a God, but not Almighty God, second person of the Trinity, if they even believe in the Trinity. Not all the cults do. But they claim, uh, you know, they, they, they don't believe He's Almighty God, so is, who is He in their mind? Well, He's a lesser God, some believe. Uh, the first creation of Jehovah God, as we said, that's the Jehovah's Witnesses. Or that He is the brother of Lucifer. Or He's actually Michael the Archangel in disguise. As we said to start our study in 1 John, the first century Gnostics believed that the physical universe, matter, was evil. And therefore, Jesus couldn't have come in the flesh with a physical body because then he would have been evil. So many Gnostics claimed he must have come as a spirit, a phantom, and not a flesh and blood person, man. Now, that was a denial of his humanity. Other Gnostics believe that since Jesus was a physical man, just too much evidence to deny it. Uh, he walked among people. Uh, people you know, hugged him, and, and he had contact with people. He was obviously a physical person. And so a lot of the Gnostics believe, well, you know, just too much evidence to support he was a real physical human being. Therefore, since they still believe the physical universe was evil and God cannot be evil, well, these, this group of Gnostics concluded that Jesus couldn't have been God in the flesh because matter is evil. If Jesus was God in the flesh, God would have been evil. God can't be evil. Therefore, Jesus couldn't have been God, a denial of his deity. One commentator continued on with this line of thought. He said, Docetus taught that Jesus was not truly a man and therefore not our Savior. Followers of Serenthus believed that Jesus was not fully God, but that God only came upon him at his baptism and then departed from him before his crucifixion. These were all first century uh, cults and heresies. These false teachers all claimed to have the truth from God. However, John pointed out that since the Son and the Father are one, a person cannot deny the Son without denying the Father as well, end quote. Then he quotes Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, Mark 8, verse 38. Matthew 10 says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, Jesus speaking, of course, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, and that would be just denying who he is. You know, I mean, denying his person. What whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father on the day of judgment in heaven. Mark 8, 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes, when Jesus comes in glory, the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So, guys, all the cults deny the person of Jesus Christ in some way. But further, they all deny the work of Jesus Christ as well. All the cults deny, well, excuse me, I should say, uh, many of the cults deny that Jesus was even crucified. Again, some of them believe, well, the Jesus Christ spirit indwelt this body, but then before the crucifixion, uh, it left him. And whoever belonged to that body was nailed to the cross. It wasn't Jesus, though. The Christ spirit had left him. 
So a lot of them deny the crucifixion itself, but many others, if not all, deny his bodily resurrection from the grave. Many teach he was raised the spirit, but not with a physical body. Again, the Jehovah's Witnesses have embraced this heresy. But you know, the tomb was empty, wasn't it? If Jesus had just been raised the spirit and left his earthly body in the grave there in the tomb, when the angel rolled away the tomb and the disciples went in, they would have found that body. They found the grave clothes had been unwrapped and thrown in one part of the tomb. Um, he wasn't there. His body was gone because it had resurrected. Of course, many liberal theologians deny the resurrection of Christ altogether. Many liberal theologians have embraced a number of uh, resurrection heresies. A couple would be, first of all, that the disciples stole the body, then fabricated the resurrection story. That was the one that uh, Schoenfeld embraced. I don't know if he's a theologian, but he's a writer. Back in the 60s, 1968, I believe his book, The Passover Plot, came out. And that was his, uh, you know, his line of thinking, that the disciples stole the body and then went around claiming Jesus rose from the dead. Of course, other liberal theologians, that, like those belonging to the Jesus Seminar, uh, they believe the Romans took the body of Jesus down from the cross and threw it into a shallow grave where it was eventually eaten by dogs. That's why nobody could find it. And I could give you a whole list of theories. Some of these theories are so bizarre, it takes less faith to believe the truth that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. Well, back to 1 John 2, verse 23. Again, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Verse 24, therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us for those who abide eternal life. Now, before I talk about that for a moment, let me just say this. What John is admonishing them to let abide in them. Again, the word abide, Greek word meno, means to remain, to continue. What is it that John says, let, therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. So this was a teaching, right? They heard it. What was this teaching they were supposed to continue in? Well, again, very basically, what John is admonishing them to hold on to was the doctrine that they had learned from the very beginning. From the first time John or whoever it was had witnessed to these people wherever this church was or these Christians were located. Whenever a disciple came into the area... Uh, and began to share with them the gospel, the very first thing this person taught them was the person and work of Jesus Christ. This seems to be the thing that was under the greatest attack by the enemy and still is today. Why? Because it's essential for salvation. We can disagree on a lot of things that will not impact our eternity in the least. Again, timing of the rapture, are the gifts of the Holy Spirit still around today, or do they pass off the scene at the end of the first century? You name it. There is a whole bunch of non-essential doctrines that Christians argue over that they really shouldn't. They're non-essential. Let's disagree in love. We'll see. 
right? Timing of the rapture? I'm a pan-tribulationist. I'm going to wait and see how it all pans out. I, I think it's, I believe the rapture is going to happen before the Antichrist is revealed, before the tribulation period officially begins. I am a pre-trib person with my eschatology. I believe in a pre-trib rapture. Now, am I right? I think I am. I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, does that mean I'm not going to heaven? Of course not. It's not essential. But there are essential doctrines that we must believe to get to heaven. And the two biggest ones are that we believe that Jesus Christ is the great I am in human form. We've been hitting that in our study of John's gospel on Sunday morning quite a bit because Jesus said, if you, uh, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You'll go to hell. The deity of Christ. Not that he's a God, but he is almighty Jehovah God in human form. And number two, that he rose from the dead bodily from the grave. Check out Romans 10, 9 and 10. Isn't it interesting that all the cults will attack one or the other or both of those doctrines? Jesus Christ, his person and work are always dead center in the, in the devil's scope because that's what he really wants to destroy in a person's mind, the truth about Christ, because that will send them to hell if they don't believe that truth. And I believe that's what John is really hitting hard here. I believe that the Gnostics and others that John uh, had to confront in the first century, the heresies of various groups, all of them had a wrong view of Christ and what he did, uh, his death on the cross, his bodily resurrection from the grave. And you know what? John and the other apostles constantly hit this very hard to keep banging the drum with regard to the truth of Jesus Christ. It's essential. Now look, John said, look, if you abide in the truth which you've heard from the beginning, here's the promise God's given you, eternal life. Now it sounds like if you read that, that the abiding earns you the eternal life. Now keep abiding, and here's the promise, eternal life. See, I don't, I don't believe that John or the other apostles are making a conditional promise. That if you abide, you'll be saved. If you don't, you won't be saved. You'll lose it. You don't keep abiding... See, again, I believe what John is saying here is if you abide, if you remain, that's again the Greek word, meno, it proves that you are truly a child of God and have eternal life. This is what John's hitting home. That anyone who does not continue, many went out from us, but they were never really one of us. If they had been one of us, they would have remained with us. But since they departed, it proved they were never truly saved again first uh, john 2 19 been a whole night last week on that verse very important verse again this continuing in the faith won't earn us salvation eternal life it will be the evidence of the fruit really of our relationship with jesus again john 8 31 if you continue if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples he didn't say, if you abide in my word, you will become my disciples. He said, it proves you are my disciples. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, It is important that you stay with the truth of God's word. The word or message Christians have heard from the beginning is all you need to keep you true to the faith. The Christian life continues just as it began, through faith in the Bible's message. 
a religious leader who comes along with something new, quote-unquote, something that contradicts what Christians have heard from the beginning is not to be trusted. Let the word abide in you, 1 John 2.24, and abide in Christ, 1 John 2.28, otherwise you will be led astray by the spirit of any Christ. No matter what false teachers may promise, you have the sure promise of eternal life. You need nothing more. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. And do you really believe in him? Because if you do, you will continue. You will continue. Now, I have to believe when John talked about abiding in Jesus and uh, likening then the abiding to fruit uh, that's born because we're connected to Christ, right, through salvation. I have to believe that uh, John had in his mind when he wrote these words down the teachings of his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ the night before the cross as they were now making their way through the city of Jerusalem uh, and they came to the beautiful Corinthian bronze doors that led from the temple area uh, down then through the uh, Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives where he would spend the rest of the night in prayer before being arrested. He stopped uh, these doors in the uh, moonlight because it was Passover time. Uh, Passover always took place at the time of the full moon. And so the light from the moon was shining off this beautiful Corinthian bronze doors, gigantic doors, and they had grape carvings on them. And Jesus seems to have stopped to use it as an illustration of a very important truth. Turn to John 15. Of course, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's a great passage to uh, know and study. I'll just give you a flavor of it. Uh, John 15, verse 4, said to his disciples, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And we've talked about this a lot, so I'm not going to get into it again. Just remember that the natural consequence of a branch being connected to a tree, a fruit-bearing tree, is that fruit will be born. Fruit will be born. And the natural consequence of a person truly being connected to Christ through salvation, fruit will be born. So a lot of people who superficially attach themselves to Christ call themselves Christians and produce a kind of a uh, counterfeit, phony fruit. They put on a good facade when it comes to how much they love people, uh, how much peace they have, you know, and all these fruits that they don't really have, but they're making up. Of course, the greatest fruit is eternal life. And a lot of these folks have deceived themselves into thinking they really are Christians. And Jesus said that when they stand before him on the day of judgment, I will tell them I never knew you depart from me. And they're going to be shocked because they went to church all their lives maybe. They were involved in ministry. Some of them even believe they have the gift of prophecy. Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Back to 1 John 2, verse 26. John said, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. The word deceive really could be translated those who try to seduce you and lead you astray. That's the, the real idea behind that. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to seduce you and lead you away from the truth. 
that truth that you received from the beginning, be careful. Guys, the Spirit of God laid it upon the other New Testament writers to warn us about those who, listen, coming into the church would seek to lead Christians astray, especially in the last days. I'll just read these to you. You can write them down. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Paul said, now the, the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. So in the last days, some will depart from the faith. That's an expression used in the New Testament of New Testament truth called the faith. Not a faith, but the faith. That body of knowledge we call New Testament theology. In the last days, Paul said some, he's talking about churchgoers, not worldly people. They don't embrace the faith. A lot of folks that were raised in Christian homes, went to Christian school maybe, were a part of Awanas and uh, all kinds of other Christian programs. And um, but Paul said they're going to depart, many of them, from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. I wish more people in the church realized that demons have doctrines. Demons have doctrines. And they primarily attack the person and work of Jesus Christ. The devil doesn't do anything new. He's only got a few plays in this playbook, but they work really well. And Christians fall for them all the time because they're not really in the word like they should be. They're not taking spiritual warfare seriously. Of course, John echoed this as we're going to see in chapter 4, verse 1 of his first epistle. He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. It's called discernment, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. But today, the body of Christ has given itself a spiritual case of AIDS. AIDS is that disease, once it enters the body, the first thing it does is shut down the body's natural defense mechanisms, making it susceptible now to all kinds of invading viruses and, and bacteria. AIDS doesn't usually kill somebody. The body gets so depleted from all these invading organisms that it eventually succumbs to you know, uh, pneumonia or something else. The body of Christ is like that. The devil has infiltrated churches and has shut down their natural defense mechanism. Well, I shouldn't say naturals, supernatural defense mechanism to keep them guarded against these, these false doctrines that are like parasites and microbes and, and, and bacteria that the devil unleashes on the body of Christ to kill it. What is the defense mechanism? That we try all things, test them, hold fast to what is good. What is good? Yeah, what's in the Bible? That we don't give heed to all kinds of seducing spirits talking through celebrity pastors and, and evangelists on TV who had some new revelation which contradicts the old truth, which if it's God talking, he never contradicts himself. But they'll tell you, you can't, you can't touch the Lord's anointed. You can't challenge the Lord's anointed. Don't you know it's, it's sinful to touch God's anointed? I'm not telling you to beat the guy up. Don't touch him that way, but challenge his teaching. You know? That's what the church is not doing, and that's why these false teachers are flooded into the church in these last days. One author had this to say, and I quote, It is interesting to observe that anti-Christian groups rarely try to lead lost sinners to their false faith. Instead, they spend much, time, much of their time trying to convert professing Christians and church members at that 
to their own doctrine. So they, they don't go out in, into the world and try to evangelize people into their twisted group, okay? They come into the church because they're being led by the devil. This is their, uh, their evangelism field, okay? We should not accept everything a person tells us simply because he claims to believe the Bible, for it is possible to twist the Bible to make it mean almost anything, end quote. Well, Peter said this uh, in 2 Peter 3.16, talking about Paul, as we just quoted earlier, but Peter said that Paul, also in all of his epistles, speaking in them uh, of things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. People who twist the Scriptures. If you torture the Scriptures long enough, you can get the Bible to say pretty much anything. You can get it to agree on almost anything that you're teaching. I had a guy say to me one time, he wanted to um, legitimize adultery, that really it wasn't a bad thing. He said, well, doesn't the Bible say to love your neighbor? I said, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, a true servant of God, a true teacher of God, was Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul said, Therefore, since we have this ministry... As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, and just using it to make a buck. We don't do that, Paul said. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul says, we're not like those who twist the scriptures. We proclaim God's truth, and we... Uh, Proclaim it faithfully. We're not in it to make money. We're only in it to bless those who hear the word. Okay? 1 John 2.26. Again, these things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Verse 27. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in in him. And again, guys, uh, once again, when John says the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, he's referring to the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit who lives inside every believer in Christ. Now, when he goes on to say, and you do not need that anyone teach you, he is not saying that Christians don't need pastors and teachers in the church to teach them anything. I mean, if that was the case, if that was what John was really saying, that you don't need teachers. Well, then he wouldn't have written this epistle to teach them. He wouldn't have done that, right? The fact that he's writing this epistle to instruct and teach them indicates he's not saying we don't need teachers. In fact, beside that, Paul told us in Ephesians 4 that Jesus himself gave some in the church to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some teaching pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Well, what is John saying then? You have this anointing within you, and you don't need uh, the, any man teach you anything. Well, what he's saying is, what he's emphasizing here is that we have within us as Christians the only teacher that really matters, okay, the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you want to know and understand the Bible, 
you don't have to look any farther than the Spirit of God, the author who wrote it and who lives inside of us. And that's why Jesus said, the Spirit will lead you into all truth. I mean, look, it's great to, when you read your Bible and you, you come across a passage you don't really understand. It's great to be able to go online, and <clears throat> there's a lot of free resources, be careful. But there are a lot of great teachers that have their stuff online, their notes and things. And you can go there and you can, uh, you can look up what they had to say, or there's commentators that have their writings online, and uh, they can really help you, if they're godly people, to understand that passage. But what if you were on a desert island somewhere, had never read the Bible, and one washed up onto the beach and you started reading it, and you had no teacher, you had no internet, and you read that passage out of John where Jesus said, the Spirit of God will teach you all things. Do you think you could say to the Lord, Lord, I, I would like to understand this book, Will you teach me? No, it doesn't make you, mean it's going to make you a theologian overnight. But he'll start with the basics and give you understanding to that. How is he going to do that? By comparing Scripture with Scripture. The old saying, Scripture interprets Scripture. That's the best way to learn the Bible. Open it up. Read the passage. Make sure you read it in its context. And then you start, and that's why you've, you've got a, a reference Bible they will give you all kinds of references of uh, other passages that connect with that one. Before you know it, you're in all kinds of, you know. One of my mentors was Chuck Missler, who's with the Lord. And uh, Chuck was a very, uh, he, he was a great Bible teacher. But if you've ever listened to Chuck Missler, you realize he wasn't for kindergartners in their faith. He was like college, okay, spiritual college. And I had a buddy who was a truck driver who, who was listening to Missler's tapes one time as he's over the road. And, you know, Missler was all over the Bible. He got so frustrated because he couldn't follow him. He told me he pulled the tape out and threw it across the cab. But see, that's what I liked about Chuck. You'd be studying Revelation, and all of a sudden you're in Isaiah. You're in Genesis. You're over here. You're all over the place. And he was taking you throughout the entire Bible piecing things together and making connections. It was, I learned so much of the Bible by just studying one book with Missler. And there's a lot of teachers out there that, uh, that are like that. And that's what John is saying. It's not that we don't need other teachers. It's just that we have the best teacher in the universe who lives inside of us and who wrote the book. So let's rely on him. Let's go to him first that are running to a man or a woman, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, but let's let God talk to us first. You know, meditate on it. Bring your heart before the Lord, right? And, um, and let him, you know, lead you into his truth. Well, we'll have to stop there. A few other things I wanted to say, as I always do, but uh, I think we'll stop tonight and uh, pick it up, uh, God willing, next week as we move into chapter 3. See what God has to say to us as we continue. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It is a light that if we will walk in its truth, it will light our way through the darkness of this world and we will never stumble. And we will never be taken captive by the devil's lies either. So thank you, Lord. Make us voracious in our hunger for the word. Give us a renewed hunger for the word, Lord, like we have never read it before in our lives and are hungry to know it intimately and deeply. 
Father, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.